Welcome to the Atlanta Tennis Podcast. Every episode is titled, It Starts With Tennis and Goes From There. We talk with coaches, club managers, industry business professionals, technology experts, and anyone else we find interesting. We want to have a conversation as long as it starts with tennis. Hey, hey, this is Sean with the Atlanta Tennis Podcast. We are in the Rejuvenate studio in Buford, Georgia, and in this episode, Bobby and I talk to Doug Lee, who is a head pro at TPC Sugarloaf. Doug is NASM certified as a fitness trainer, as well as certified as a tennis instructor with the PTR. All right, Doug, let us know when you can hear us. Can you see me? We can see you, yep. What is this I see here? Oh, that's my whole screen. You don't need that. That's our that's <laughs> our uh, our background on you. That's oh, us okay. checking you out. Nice. What's going on, uh, bro? Hello. So, Doug, meet Bobby. Bobby, meet Doug. Hey, Doug. Bobby, how's it going? All right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Bobby is a personal friend. I met him when we were doing our USPTA certification. 20 years ago, 20 years, years I think, <laughs> 20 years ago. Okay. Which, nice. uh, which also brought up a question. I was researching your LinkedIn, which I, I'm guessing you don't use much at all. Cause no, there's not, not much, not that much. Yeah. Not much to learn there, but it doesn't say USPTA. Are you, are you, are you PTA or PTR? I'm PTR. A PTR. Yeah, okay. PTR. I couldn't remember that. I was I was putting that yeah. in. I'm like, I'm gonna put that into my little introduction, but I can't see mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. USPT something. Yeah, I yeah, it's a it's PTR. Okay. Although it is good to have, I think it's better to have both. It always looks a little bit more professional when you have both. Would you agree with that, Bobby? Do you know many people that are PTA and PTR? Oh, a lot of the guys who are the career diplomats carry both. This way they can run for office in either one. So there are mm-hmm. some. <laughs> I, I, I just, they're, thankfully, they're finally getting closer to becoming one under the USDA. So I think the need for both is diminished after all these years. Oh, that's okay. good. Well, that's well, good. Let's start with that question because we'll, we'll ask Doug as the PTR representative and we'll have Bobby being the PTA representative and I'll pretend to be neutral. <laughs> but do we, do we have opinions on if one is better than the other? I think the other day I told a, I told a quick little story in our interview with Ken from Atlanta Country Club about the advice to me was if if PTR is your college degree and this was 20 years ago so don't don't get me wrong it things are potentially different that's why we just asked the question if PTR is your college degree then PTA is your masters and I'm mm-hmm. wondering as things evolve now we say okay it's 20 years later are they mm-hmm. really that different our certification organizations like that just better now i mean is there is there really a way to compare them and is there a way to say one's better than the other should we should they become one thing do you do you have an opinion on that doug um i mean i think it's a good foundation to have i think on court experience um, is really what your master's degree is, you know, considering what we do. Um, you know, like when I was doing my personal training certification, you know, they have all these things like guidelines, like you should keep, you know, repetitions and sets and rest breaks here and do this and that. But, um, I look at it more like a template, you know, because when you get real life situations, you know, it's not, it's like when they, you go to, um, not a symposium, you go to like a, um, workshop, you know, and they have drills and they're doing these drills and these drills look amazing, but it's also with like super talented kids, you know, and you go, Hey, you know what? That's not what I have every day, you know? Um, so you have to be creative. You have to know how to break things down as a coach. Um, and sometimes things, you know, from, a certification on paper look great, but they don't necessarily work in, in real life. You have to be able to adjust, you know, just like tennis, it's a game of adjustments. So you have to adjust to personalities, uh, parents, you have to adjust to, uh, skill levels and situations, you know, so, uh, to make a, uh, I guess this short answer very long is that 
um, you know, doing a, a weekend certification for through the PTR or the PTA is great. It's great to have that paper, but I wouldn't look at either of them as necessarily uh, like a college degree or a master's degree. I'd look at those as kind of like, it's a good template to work off of. Um, continue education is good. Um, and it's always good to get ideas. I mean, experience is good, but it's also, you don't want to get stuck in the box. So it's good to find ideas from, you know, big uh, certification bodies like that. I like that point of view where experience really is the greatest teacher, right, Bobby? I completely agree with that. And I think if we go with the, and you're right, a weekend certification, I haven't spent four years studying tennis in an educational setting. So the, the example of college degree versus master's was obviously hyperbolized considering the certifications. Do you have a combination? And this is one of the unique things about you, Doug, and we'll kind of go back into the, the questions that you expected. So thanks for playing with that one for a second. Yeah. Uh, and we'll go into your certifications and stuff, but to keep with the PTA PTR question, Bobby, mm -hmm. would you, would you agree with the concept of having one governing body or do you like the competition between the two? Well, it, it depends on how it evolves. Like you said, from the first question, I would look at it. How did each evolve? Was there a need that one wasn't meeting that the other one came about? Which one came first? Uh, one thing I, I'm interesting with, with Doug, having that extra certification on the fitness side, I know the PTA is trying to develop different pathways where you could take business or you can take the fitness side of it. Mm -hmm. Is the is the PTR recognizing your work that you've done on the training side is, is part in recognizing it within their curriculum or because I have a master's in business and, mm -hmm. I, and, and been a tournament director and I asked the PTA, you know, what doesn't that count for something? And they looked at me and said, well, you should probably focus then on the physical side of it which made me laugh because I was like, well, I have a much better background in this one. Why would you push somebody in a different direction other than you wanted mm -hmm. to make money? So yeah. what I'd ask you, do they recognize your fitness credentials? Um, I sent them an email um, with, in terms of like continuing education units. Right. Exactly. And I said, look, I spent a lot of money and time like with the fitness certification um, through NASM, it's, it's, it took a while. I mean, sure. it's an online course, but it's, it's very involved. Um, and then I got two extra certifications on top of that with that body. Um, and so the, the last one I got is a, a performance enhancement. Uh, I saw that. That's a really cool certification name, by the way, performance, yeah. excuse me, performance enhancement specialist. Stay, That's stay cool, away Doug. from that, Sean. Stay yeah. away from that. I'm all over. I'm doing that <laughs> next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up. Uh, That's a cool name. But uh, yeah, not that kind of performance enhancement, Sean. It's, uh, oh, oh. it's, uh, no, it's, it's all about athletics. So basically they did recognize it and they said, yes, you can use that as your continuing education units. Um, because I don't think there's a ton of guys. I mean, now I think there's more guys doing that, but um I don't think there's a ton of tennis pros out there that are, are going and getting their, you know, personal training certifications, things like that. But I think, I don't know. I mean, I may have started something because, you know, there's, I and mean, then there's um, tennis specific training, right? Tennis sports specific training for tennis. Um, so, you know, there's, I think there's plenty of guys out there that do that, that sort of thing. So how do you feel as somebody as qualified as you are when you go to a PTR symposium and a lecture or presentation is given by someone who has doesn't have an undergraduate degree, has taken the USPTR little basic physical training courses, mm -hmm. and now they're a presenter at a national symposium when there's somebody like you in the audience? Um, I'm definitely going to critique it. You know, um, I'm not the most scientific guy. I'm not the most, um, I'm pretty technical term, like on the court and in the gym. Um, but I'm not like, I'm not like super, like the, there's so many formulas that you can go with. Um, 
in terms of like, well, none of us are scientists the, and that's yeah, a different, exactly. that's a different brain so, style. Yeah. If, if I'm one, I'd have to see that they're qualified. You know, do you have a degree or where you study exercise science or kinesiology or, um, you know, something along that track? Um, do you have a, you know, a strength and conditioning background? Like, have you worked with players before? Are you a tennis player? Um, do you know which muscles to really look for and kind of build up on uh, as a tennis player? Um, and also which muscles to stretch out. And cause I think you can, you know, obviously when your, um, body gets into certain patterns, you're going to be, you know, stronger with certain areas, you know, certain muscles like my right side, I think my right arm weighs like a pound heavier than my left arm. Exactly. Like you, you notice some good tennis players, the right forearms always much bigger than the left. Um, guys. So Bobby, uh, to answer your question, if somebody's presenting um, something about sports performance, I would definitely listen and, and consider the information that they're giving. Like I'd have to be convinced, you know, um, and sometimes they can just go out there and it can look like it's, it's very, uh, what's, not, what's the word, not fancy, but elaborate. And you're like, oh, that looks interesting. Um, so normally I'm just looking at the functionality of, um, if I went to a symposium, like, all right, why are they doing that? Okay. Okay. I can see why they're, they're working on that. That's good for stabilization or that's good for, uh, explosive strength. That's good for stamina, you know? So I'd have to see that the information, uh, works for me where it, I, it makes sense in my head, you know, and then I go, okay, I can apply that with some of the students I'm working with or, you know you know, next high performance class, we're going to spend 10 to 15 minutes working on that because I think that could be beneficial, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think it would help that they have some kind of background in it. Um, instead of just kind of popping in there and not having anything, you know, any certs or any degrees, uh, to back up what they're saying, you know, the letters after your name often do bring, the yeah. respect is the wrong word. Do bring it does bring in the what's the word I'm looking for? Credibility. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Credibility does mm -hmm. bring. I'm gonna start that over again. The oh, the uh, yeah the cre the credibility just with the with the PTR with the PTA with NASM after your name. Mm -hmm. going if if we're talking fitness, and I don't have NASM after my name, I have a lot more to prove in conversation then a business card can simply say, all right, I'm starting from this point. And I think that's where the PTA, PTR, all right, look, it's the basis. I like what Doug said. It's your starting point. Here's your template. And I remember the training. It's you got to say the name X amount of times. You got to do the warm up. You got to do this. You got to spend certain mm -hmm. amount of times on those certain things. And I like that template, but it isn't really the master's program. It is really experience being the greatest teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one of the things I was just looking up, it makes me laugh. I'm checking out PTR, looking at, uh, looking for Doug and I didn't find it by the way, but looking, <laughs> <laughs> not that you're not, Am PTR, I not on your website right now. Am I no, not I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking for something else, but yeah. it says that, uh, PTR has four certifications where I think, yeah. um, PTA has the different levels. It used to be P1, P2, but now they have mm -hmm. different names. I'll have to update myself on all of that and go back and edit this to uh, make myself sound more knowledgeable. But the, it says it has four certifications that fit the needs of tennis teaching professionals worldwide, 10 and under, 11 to 17, performance, mm -hmm. and then adult and senior development. Right? Yeah. So the four certifications, right? But due to the knowledge needed, there's no certification that encompasses all five of these areas. Yeah, I mean... That's not five areas. That's four areas. I, I'm just well, reading from can, the website. Like, have, I got to call have, Mr. PTR. PTA has it too. The you can get a master professional, you know. Oh, the master professional might be the fifth area. I'm I'm picking yeah. on it that they said all five areas and they're claiming mm -hmm. only four certifications. But yeah, maybe the master of tennis is the uh, is the next thing. It is Sean. The, the the PTA is actually in the pro and they don't say tennis anymore. 
they're saying paddle and racket sports because they yeah. want to include pickleball and paddle mm -hmm. in it. But I, I think what you're saying speaks volume to let's be nice. The shortcomings of our initial organizations is that it has never been completely necessary to have. And if you're going to be that organization and you're going to represent yourself as being the end all, why isn't it that when people look for somebody, that's the first place they turn? I think it's a career path at the higher levels for the people who are looking for the elite high end country clubs. But does, do you really need, as Doug said, a master professional high performance in a high end country club because you're probably not going to have that player. That player is going to go someplace else. So that, that to me speaks to the roundabout of the whole question with the USPTA, USPTR, there were shortcomings. They're trying to address the shortcomings. We've been involved for, for 20 years. So we, we see it and where it's gone, where, you know, where they hope it's going to. And in, in the latest incarnation is this master's, in racket paddle sports through the USPTA. And they're also offering at University of Florida. So they're taking the PTM program that was at Ferris State. They're now trying to create something on a master's degree level as well. That makes sense. And looking at looking at PTA now, they've moved their certification concepts to starting to specify rather than your level one, level two, level three, which is what, uh, what we were doing 20 years ago. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, there's a, there's a high school version. There's a you know, school coach, there's a corporate membership. Evidently you just give them money for their emails. That's, <laughs> that's a great membership. I'll, I'm going to start putting that one in there. Just if you want to send us money, we'll email you. Then mm -hmm. that's cool. And then professional to elite, there's recreational coach to tennis instructor. That's a conversion that they're making. But that's interesting to kind of just go through the conversations and say, hey, you're PTR. What do you like about it? You know, why'd you pick? That would be the next question for Doug. When you decided, you know what? I'm going to get a tennis coach certification. I'm going to get some letters after my name being a tennis coach. Why'd you pick PTR? I was like, uh, I think maybe 22, right? That's um, when I did mine. Yeah. And, uh, I had actually just gotten back into tennis. I went to uh, college, uh, stopped playing completely. Um, just kind of went the you know different route. And uh, when I came back, I was working in an office, and it was it was just not for me. So my brother was coaching at the time. Said, "Hey, jump over here, join me." So he was working at an indoor facility. So I went over there. Um, when I decided, I kind of it was just like flipping a coin. I was like, "Hmm." I don't know. Like I'll just pick one. So pick the PTR and I've just stuck with it since 2004, maybe. So sure. at the time there was no, there was no mentor for advice. You didn't get a job at a club. And then, cause that, what I did it's, is I got the job and then mm -hmm. they said, you're going to go get your PTA USPTA. I didn't, if that, if it I was didn't even know if there was another option. It was just, this is what you're going to do. Yeah. If it was presented to me that way, I would have gotten the PTA. Um, but I just went, okay, PTR, there's something in town this month and uh, I'll go do it because my boss wants me to get a certification. It worked out. Bobby, do you remember how you made that decision? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I think just like you said, maybe somebody said PTA was a little bit more difficult. And, and I think back in the day, the on-court was, there was so much more subjectivity in the PTR on-court test as opposed to the PTA. So that was the attraction. But again, I, I, it's a great conversation because it's interesting to see the origins of them and how they came about. And I think the PTR, frankly, was Dennis Vandermeer driven. So Dennis's name was attached to it. The little bit differences that they tried to emphasize that there was a little bit more of an international flavor to the membership themselves because Dennis himself was South African, even though he was located out of South Carolina. And Dennis just had a great influence, especially in this area, because a lot of guys would go work for Dennis and then go out on their own. That was their internship. That was their background. And now go spread the word of Dennis. And, you know, Dennis <clears throat> was on a different level when it came to coaching anyways. It was almost always fun to watch. And that certainly helped spread the PTR bandwagon. I remember, I remember that. As you described, PTA was described to me as it's going to be a tougher certification, and that's yeah. why. Mm-hmm. You know, better, worse at the time. 
I was young, so I didn't make that decision. My my head pro made that decision for me, and I will uh, I will forever thank Daryl Lewis for that for that advice. But maybe maybe a guy like Doug at the time, or there are plenty of others in the Atlanta area trying to figure out if they want to go get certified. I remember Kevin Lim came to me, one of the kids I worked with. I say kids, he's in his twenties now, running his own academy, running his own tennis business, and I'll we'll ask him coming up as well are you going to get certified? If you haven't already, he came to me and said, which way should I go? He has kind of the mentor, he has that mentor relationship to be able to ask for advice, which one, mm-hmm. but at some level, if it's not going to be the, the political side or the country club elite level career, both might not ever be necessary. For me in my business, neither is necessary. I keep it because it gives me credibility for our lesson plans for me to be able to say our lesson plans are designed by a USPTA certified tennis professional. And that allows Mm -hmm. all of our coaches for ankle biters to go out using professionally designed lesson plans. There's a credibility just by me paying my $300 a year. And there's Mm -hmm. insurance. There are plenty of benefits with it, but we all have our reasons for keeping the, the certifications. And that'll be fun to continue that conversation with others. And I, uh, I appreciate Doug, you, you doing that. That's fun to say. So do you remember how you made that decision? Mm-hmm. Like, I just flipped a coin, man. I don't know. Yeah. That's kind of great. So we had some questions that we wanted to ask and we can go straight in. But before we do that, I do want to bring up when Doug blew past the hole was starting to go a different direction for a while after college, I've got to give him, give him some props if that's the right phrase, but Doug and I have worked together on a few projects outside of tennis and outside of business because Doug, I fancy myself a songwriter and Doug actually is a songwriter. So it was really cool for me to say, oh my gosh, you play guitar? And I'd be like, yeah, can this guy really play guitar? And holy cow, the guy can really play a guitar. And like I said, if I fancy myself as a songwriter and I'm, I'm pretty good at all of the things when it comes to writing a song, Doug just blows me out of the water. So it was a lot of fun to get together with him and we should do that at some point and, and play some more. And, and at that point, be able to teach Bobby how to use a microphone better. Cause I know he's upgrading his, uh, I worked for a songwriter. Oh, oh nice. well, there you go. There you go. Marty Panzer used to write for Barry Manilow. Oh, wow. Yes. Through wow. the years, the, the, the appliance commercial, he used to make $75,000 a quarter for that for Maytag to use that song wow so it's and so what did you do what did you do you said you worked for the songwriter what was your role personal assistant okay I mean so you weren't running a board making sound oh heck no no nothing audio he was in the at that point he was in the television business Doug you and I have a a fairly similar background Mm with what you described so it was I was happy to hear that people take different paths to this career as well uh, you know, went straight or went into the business world for a while, was a personal assistant in Hollywood for somebody, mm-hmm. Was worked with Marty Panzer, who was on, oh gosh, back in the day, it was some stupid show about exotic animals. And he also was a songwriter. He wrote with Barry Manilow. They grew up together in Brooklyn and he wrote four or five Barry Manilow's biggest hits. And it was cool because he literally lived on his residual checks. He knew when he was going to get paid. He would ring up bill, bell, you know, huge bills for four months. The residual checks would come. He'd go back to ground zero and do it again. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> so it was many musicians of, do that. Yeah, I made a million dollars. Well, where is it? Gone. Gone. Oh, boy. I don't even know what I'd spend a million dollars on. I can think of a few things. <laughs> <laughs> so costing, here, here's our segue. Watch this. So speaking of a million dollars, mm. if you were king of tennis, Mm-hmm. Does that work? Is it a segue? Uh, Good segue. Uh, I, I, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. But one of the questions I wanted to ask Doug, and I sent it ahead of time so we had some time to think about it, is if you were king of tennis, and we've talked certifications, we've talked how people get into tennis, and what you do is your unique qualifications of mm-hmm. being a fitness instructor as well as tennis coach. I'm curious, that gives you that unique perspective. If your answer ends up different, I mean, everybody's answer is unique. But if yours ends up leaning that direction, which has me curious, has me thinking about it, wanting to know what's going on. If you were king of tennis and you could change anything, whether it was just the Atlanta area or the United States or all over the world, whatever scale you have, is there something you would change? Is there something you would do as king of tennis? Um, 
I would try to make it more of an accessible sport to, um, to everyone, you know, it's, you know, people can't, you can't just pick up a rack. I mean, you could, you need some instruction. It's not like, uh, basketball, you need some instruction too, but I mean, you can just go to the basketball court and shoot hoops, you know, tennis, it's, it's different. Um, so I would try to make tennis more, if I were the king of tennis, I would make it more accessible, um, to all different types of demographics, uh, that don't have access to it or easy access to it. Um, you know, that way, I mean, you know, especially in the States, like if you make it more accessible to a greater pool of people, um, obviously you're going to have more talent that comes out of there, you know? So, I mean, I guess if we're speaking in terms of like the United States, um, you made it more accessible and you get more athletes and it's not just a sport for the, uh, elites, um, then that to me would be great. I'd also, um, Hmm. Know, there's, there's plenty of things I think you, you could do. Some kids get burned out of tennis, you know, cause it's such a, it's a, such a mind game, you know, when you're out there by yourself. Um, I mean, I've, I know I've self-destructed many a time when I was a junior, you know, throwing my racket, broken rackets, but never uh, as an adult. No, never. <laughs> okay, good. No, I me haven't. either. Uh, Only as a junior. So, I think there, and then the the sportsmanship, you know, etiquette, um, you know, crazy parents. <laughs> like I changed all of that. I'd want to change all of that, you know, and just just take the purity, the the like the pure joy and excitement that I get from tennis, hitting a clean forehand for a winner, right? Um, and, you know, being able to get people to, to have that as well, you know, without all the, all the other, you know, crappy things I just mentioned, like, um, that come along with it, come along with tennis. So I don't know, it, that would, I guess that would be it. it. I'd make it more accessible to people that, that don't have access, um, or easy access to it. And then, you know, subtract all the all the crappy things that come along with it, you know, and it's not even any stuff on the court, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's about it. I don't know. So putting you on the spot then for the answer, because everybody has these pie in the sky kind of ideas and, you know, we want world peace. The question is, how do you do that? So we say, all right, I want to make it more accessible. That's great. Is there a plan? Is there a way? Does that mean unlock all tennis courts that are currently like, Tennis courts are free and there are public mm -hmm. parks and tennis rackets are $15. I mean, it's not a, it's not a really expensive sport to get into like American football or golf or, you know, where there's a lot of equipment. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. have, you, have we put any thought into how we make it more accessible? Well, you have to set up uh, programs, obviously at local courts. So I guess if you had, again, some kind of nonprofit, um, organization. And then you had satellite campuses, um, you know, in each state and then each state would, you know, have their campuses, uh, or just few courts that they use. Um, you could set up programs like that. Um, and then I guess, um, you know, there's people that always have used rackets. I mean, how many used rackets are out there? Um, That's a good thought. I collected, I collected two, two junior rackets from a parent that has all high school kids and older now. So I had a mm -hmm. 20, a 21 inch racket and a 23 inch racket that they said, Hey, they're just sitting in the garage with our other rackets, but these were never going to use because we have all full size humans in the house and they donated them to us. So we get a chance. Now I can, hand that racket to a beginner player or somebody that can't afford one. But I, lo mm -hmm. I love the concept of, Hey guys, let's do a, a nationwide, or maybe we do this in Atlanta and we say, let's do a day where we clean out our garages. And if you have extra, whatever golf clubs, tennis rackets, in this case, we'll just stick with tennis rackets. You have extra tennis rackets, go to your local tennis club and drop them off. And in that case, the question is, all right, well, in that case, are you just the tennis club is, is that just the rich kids playing? Cause those are the ones that can afford the tennis lessons that can afford the house to live in that neighborhood or afford the membership. 
how do you go down and, and do a tennis racket donation concept to the empty tennis courts in an area where the coaches can't make enough money to operate. So they don't operate there. Like you say, does that require a real nonprofit concept or grant funding? So still, does it come down to money or it, can it be more community-based of let's figure out a way to encourage people to help each other to make it more accessible? Yeah. You'd hope, you'd hope for the latter, I think, um, you know, community. I'm concerned uh, it always just comes down to money. Have you, have you, you've run charity events, Bobby. What's, what are your thoughts on how you would make it more accessible? Well, I'm sitting here laughing hysterically, guys, and I love what we're insinuating. So somebody just say it already. We have a very large nonprofit that is the organization that runs tennis in this country that has satellite offices in each and every state in each and every region of the country. So are we saying that it's failing miserably? Is that what I'm hearing? And nobody's just saying it or I'm laughing because it, that's the, isn't that it's not getting I've, down to the I've street. never, yeah, I've never heard. So you're talking about the USDA. There you go. And <laughs> I've never heard anything even <laughs> remotely like, you know, you'd see signs up, you'd see it all over the place, you know, but you don't, it's not really out there. And tennis, I mean, I've been in this game for, for a while now. It's, 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 I don't know if they just don't put the effort in or, or what it is. Um, but I mean, these are great know. questions and that's my, my question would be then to the other side of it, Sean, is just to be the, clear. I just asked the question. I didn't say <laughs> USTA. Is, is it the culture liable. of the game that <laughs> limits people entering it because they don't want to be associated with the, the, the culture of that parent who feels that they have some privilege that allows them to act be poorly, whether it be with the coach. Well, in that case, no one would play ice hockey. But it, you know, here's the difference in ice hockey. It, violence is acknowledged as part of the sport. Not you in the go stands. To, you go too far. You've never been to a hockey game. That's I, what I'm saying. Was, it happens <laughs> in the stands too. Like, that's the parent problem. I mean, I, my first recollection was go look up Rangers Boston Bruins at Madison Square Garden when the Bruins went into the stands and Boston Bruin players were beating fans with their shoes. That's they a great point. And we're hitting them. But I, I mean, I cl completely agree with what we're, what we're leading up to. The USDA has not done, in my opinion, a very good job of ever selling this game. Well, and, and does it, does it come down to money? Is it, doesn't everything come down to money? It's if we're going to grow the game, do we have to pay the coaches to go play with the people that can't afford it? Um, I, and I like putting Doug on the spot and saying, all right, great. How are we going to grow the game? How are we going to make it? What does make it more accessible even mean? Like I said, tennis courts aren't locked and they don't cost money. You don't have to be in the country club to play tennis. You could Now, if you can't afford tennis lessons, that's fine. Maybe you just need to be able to make a friend. And in that case, or, that's not a USDA problem. That's it, a parenting problem. Yeah, if you're, if you're that into it, you got, you got YouTube. Yeah, you learn from YouTube, sure. But I grew up in New York. So the reality is you don't have what you have down here, where you uh, literally do have different. tennis courts everywhere, and you have fantastic public parks. Mm -hmm. There were limited access to tennis courts, and the weather made that limitation even greater because you had to deal with poor weather eight months out of the year. Well, that's yeah, their fault I'm from, for living there. I'm from Philadelphia, Bobby. I, <laughs> I, I worked indoors for 10 years. Like, exactly. I, I, yeah. People yeah, ask there me about any, the were cold. There any oh, sorry, Bobby. Were no, there any programs indoors that brought in people that couldn't afford it? Did you have a day that was paid by the USTA to bring in people that couldn't afford it? Did those things, did the, USP, did the USTA offer those kinds of things or were they still charging everybody for every league that they sign up for to play per player? I mean, I, where, I, like I, Bobby said, where's the, where's the free thing that this organization is supposed to grow the game and grow the sport yet we don't have access except for indoor courts and let's be honest only wealthy people can afford indoor tennis courts oh it's true i mean it's i grew up my father was a longshoreman i was a poor kid somehow i gravitated toward tennis we met a coach who 
analogize tennis to boxing, which my father was very familiar with, and that made tennis legit. And the fact that I wasn't real physically imposing, the, my father liked the fact that his, he didn't think his son was going to get beat up. But I never felt comfortable within the culture of tennis. I would have the knockoff Adidas. You know, I'd have two and a half stripes mm -hmm. because we couldn't afford the third stripe. My coach was African-American and my dad was a longshoreman. When we walked into the place, we were never really welcomed with open arms. And it was a feeling that it carried me through my my playing days and it made it easier to walk away. And, and Doug, you made a comment earlier, which I just loved about the feeling of hitting that, that clean forehand. And that's why I still play. I it's, I still like hitting every day. People ask me, do you miss competing? As I competed in a lot of sports, the competition isn't it. It's that feeling of hitting that ball correctly, whether beforehand, backhand volley, that's what gets me jacked up about getting on the court every day. And that's the, what, as a coach, is the feeling that you try to push on to other people. And it does bother me that we don't get enough kids. And, and, and I completely, again, with what you said, Doug, it's just, listen, marketing. The more people you're drawing from the pool, the more successful we're going to be. So how do we get more people into the pool? And flat out, I, I just don't think we've done a very good job of it. And, Sean, we've talked about this. Tennis is the only sport where you have to go register team in hand. When I played baseball, I went to the local baseball league that put me on a team, realizing look, I don't have nine other players, same age, same ability, so you're all going to play here. Tennis makes it difficult. The entry barriers are to, into tennis are very difficult. Now, is that the game controlling the entry barriers? Is it the culture associated game with the game creating the entry barriers that don't get the kids that don't fall in those social circles to even put their foot in. Because again, we're in an unprecedented time as far as physicality is concerned associated with the game. It is a great game. It is an incredible game played by incredible athletes. It should be worshiped a lot more than it is, but because we only have a few players in this country that have reached the levels lately, there's a whole generation that's going without, and we're about to lose Serena. So what, what's going to be left in this country that we're going to look to? So, mm -hmm. um, Who's that? Who did Serena, no, who did Serena play in the semifinal this year at the Australian? Oh, uh, did she beat her? Yeah. Brady? Brady. Brady. Okay, so Brady's – Brady – is something I guess we can look forward to, right? Who else? Coco's coming. The men's side. But if you know if you're if you're a coach, you're walking watching Coco, and there's a couple hiccups in her strokes that you're a little worried about. We've we've seen it with other. We saw it with Robbie Ginepri sit there and say, "Yeah, he's made." Is that not encouraging to the Alta player? I mean, who was it? The Redwanska girl. I swear to, she was just the best Alta player we've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, talk about getting really good at doing it wrong. She could do it right if it was in the strike zone. Anything else looked ho looked horrible. And what'd she get? Number one in the world? Yeah. I mean, that's there's the look. It doesn't have to look great. And this is coming from a guy. I'm, I, I don't always look perfect when I hit the ball. I will do whatever it takes as well. So maybe the player like Radwanska kind of reminded me that it's okay to not do everything perfect. But there's yeah. a good encouragement. Do we really believe that American tennis players in the top 10 increases participation in the sport in the United States. Do we have numbers on that? Is that true? Well, it would have to be somebody with a lot of charisma, you know, somebody like, uh, like on the golf side, you had like Tiger Woods, you know, um, or like LeBron James or, you know, for basketball or I don't know, somebody that people relate to, you know, if oh. they're in the top 10 and you're pulling for them. Coco is a really good one, I think moving forward. Uh, I can see where that would encourage the good 12 year old girl play. Oh, I'm going to be like Coco, but does absolutely. it, I mean, the kids that aren't the kids that aren't tennis players already have no idea who Coco is. I'm sorry. Their parents aren't at home watching the U S open and they're not watching the third round women's matches. It's just not, it's not mm -hmm. a thing. So I'm just wondering, is that really, is there a, any kind of relationship between when Andy Roddick was number one in the world which was what, the last U.S. number one tennis player? And at the time, where was there this influx of tennis in the United States, and it's gone down since then? I'm curious if those numbers exist, because I don't know if the USTA is missing the point in trying to get the next great tennis player 
rather than let's figure out how to get these empty free tennis courts full of kids playing. Well, I definitely think there's a car. I'm a kid of the seventies, Jimmy Connors and Chris Everett are responsible for the tennis boom. And I think a lot of had to do with it. Jimmy Connors portrayed himself as a kid from the streets. So he was a different dynamic. He was from East St. Louis, Missouri, a, a supposedly a little tougher part of town. The Billy so, Joel of tennis. Yeah. So, you know, there was that. And then you go to Serena. Look, look what Serena did for Puma. Serena didn't always wear Nike. She wore Puma. And when Puma became number three, in apparel, Nike got the checkbook out and signed Serena. So I Serena, have no problem with them selling clothes. Like I get that. But Nike's I think it has benefit. an impact on obviously if people are if they're buying her clothes, they know what she does and they've watched her. So it is influencing. I agree. We need to get more people, and and I think this country we're definitely Roddick was great, but he what one Grand Slam? Yeah, uh, one. Just one. one. Okay, when Connors came on in '74, he won three out of the four. It was. And, you know, he wasn't allowed to play in the French that year. So there's the, uh, would he have won the Grand Slam that year? In all probability, yes, because we were a year short of Borg coming on. So he was not allowed to play in the, Fr the French Open that year because he had made a commitment to World Week Team Tennis, which, again, that's a whole different story. And, and how tennis killed themselves is that Connors didn't like the way the tour was being run and essentially created his own tour that competed with the men's tour in the seventies. So there's so much underlying in tennis that, you know, that started this whole thing back in the day, but I do think we're a country driven by greatness. And we looked at Roddick. Roddick was good. He wasn't going to get to that. Obviously how many finals did he lose to Federer? All so, so he never but, got to that next level, but Serena, do I think Serena moved the bar? Oh yeah. I, what about, um, talking about greatness in life, um, kind of having that like flamboyance, um, to attract people like Andre Agassi. That was, that was my guy when I was younger, yeah. you know, that's the re like, I loved watching him play. And then I wanted to wear his clothes. You know, I wanted to use his racket. I wanted was to get that, Oakley. He got Oakley's like, and, and was, but was that, that as a tennis player, Agassi was your guy? Because what got me into tennis was the fact that my parents, and maybe I'm going to go with Bobby's idea here, and I'm looking, just doing some research as we're talking, when it was back in the day that American television consumers had the American to cheer for, we cheered against the communists, and we would watch the tennis matches. And I remember as a kid, I was not a tennis player. I was five years old and it was too young for tennis because we didn't have the smaller tennis rackets. You know, I'm a, I'm a fan of the, the, that equipment, but my parents watched the McEnroe and Borg tennis matches. And it was the American versus the communist or American versus the Swede or, and, it, and maybe that was the, the television draw that got the parents to watch it, that got the kids to appreciate it. So when the parents said, do you want to play tennis? The kid knew what tennis was to say yes to. Maybe that was more of the draw rather than just number one in the world is directly related to people going out and playing tennis. Or maybe that is the direct relationship. I mean, what about like, look at basketball, Michael Jordan, you know, he influenced, he influences people still today. Uh, I think, you know, people want to be associated with greatness. You know, that's why you wear jerseys, right? You wear a Jordan jersey or Jordan shoes or, or whatever. Uh, what else? People wear the clothes, like, like the, whatever, Nadal cutoff shirts with the bull. Like, I wear that stuff. Um, yeah. Well, you've got the arms to wear that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's just my opinion anyway. You, sure. If you have somebody that's great like that, it, it makes it, you know, it doesn't make the sport less appealing. You know, it, it can only be more appealing with somebody is, I don't know, it's, it can influence like that. Again, you guys are too young, unfortunately. Basketball was dying, was a dead sport in this country. And you had two guys come along in 1979 called Magic and Larry that, all of a sudden created a huge hype about it. And then you bring in Michael Jordan three years later, this transcendent star. 
and basketball is arguably the most popular sport in the world and has done an incredible job globally marketing their product. So that's the good news for tennis. There have been successful reclamation projects that 1978 basketball was in a lot of trouble. I mean, the UCLA dynasty was ending uh, and the, the, all the bad stories about what was really going on was starting to get, you know, a lot is attributed to culture and, and the change in the country. But the good news for tennis is it's happened. Now, Doug, I want to pick your brain on this again, because your background is, is interesting. How much do you feel fitness plays a role at the highest levels of tennis today with the training? How, how would you split it up between on-court and off-court training that the, the guys at the highest levels are doing? Um, I don't have experience with the guys at the highest levels, mm-hmm. um, but I think, it, I think it plays a role. I think solid, you know, one, they have to naturally be athletic and then mm-hmm. they have a good base that you work off of. Um, and they, they would have to have like a natural tennis build you know, and that build is looking, it's looking different, like every year, you know, sure. the guys now look like they're six, four, um, not necessarily lanky, they're six, four and like solid. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it plays a very like stamina wise, you know, you'd have to work on that. You'd have to work on flexibility, um, strength training, as the ball's coming in a lot harder, you have to have a very stable base when you're hitting the ball. Um, I mean, it's tennis. It's, it's like, it's just an incredible sport. You have to have all those factors uh, mixed into it, especially the flexibility. I think no, it does Novak stretch. How much does he stretch? Is it like 90 minutes a day? It's ridiculous. Yes. Um, yes. So the stretching, the strength training, the, the endurance, the balance training, um, the rest, you know, I think, especially now, I mean, look at Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, a lot of these guys, they're playing now into their mid thirties. You know, I think when did Sampras retire? He was like 31, right? 32. So um, Edberg, Becker, those guys back in the day, I feel like they get to 31 and you're like, I don't think they're going to be playing much longer. Novak's 33. And you think, well, damn, like, I don't know when he's going to slow down. Right. Um, Nadal, same thing. I mean, his, his body's taken a, a beating over the years, but um, that's also the way he plays. Uh, yes. But I think fitness is, is huge. Um, and there's, it's, it's like a whole thing. It's the rest. It's the uh, strength training. It's the agility. It's, um, it's all of that combined. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, really important. I mean, I, I, to put a percentage on it, I don't know. Maybe. God. So if you if you had to, Bobby, if you had to split it up, there's the um, – you've got the technical side. Mm-hmm. You've got the physical side. You've got the mental side. All right? So uh, in, per- in terms of percentages, what do you think are the most important? Cause that's what I'm thinking like with fitness and just trying to think of what the percentage would be. I, I can't think of it in my head, but I know that it's super important. Well, and I think what you, I think it's a great point, especially with Novak. I think his incredible fitness leads to an incredible advantage on the mental side. Let's go play yeah. six hours. You're not going to be there at the end of six hours. I'm going to be, I mean, I'll never forget that Australian open with he and Nadal when you saw at the end of the match, he was the winner and he was cramping up to the point you're like, get this poor man a chair. He's about mm-hmm. to fall over. And you could see it was happening, but that was after six hours. So he had every right to be that tired. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when Michael Chang did the, the, the big boom for the banana business at the French open that year by eating bananas. And all of a sudden that became the cure all for cramping and you know, yeah. you research and say, okay, there, there were some errors there, but we get the idea. But again, and I, what I like about this is it, it goes back to my, the thesis that we all started this with are our governing bodies, our organizations doing enough 
to highlight how important fitness look at what basketball i mean uh football especially with the combines you know how fast the guy is you know how much they can bench press you know how high they can do a vertical jump this is all part of being a football player Mm -hmm. tennis unfortunately in this country is driven by local what we see it that's not reality if you're going to i think we should give props to tennis to show what an unbelievable sport it is. And I think that would create a, a greater interest as well. Not that it's this country club sport, because listen, the country club player is not playing at the professional level. Again, because as Sean said about the pool, there's no place bigger than Atlanta, Georgia, as far as number of players. And this is junior and otherwise playing tennis. Has that translated into more kids playing D1 from Atlanta? And we did this a couple of years ago. We did a study when we were in a, doing a high performance and it didn't, it was frightening how few kids were playing at elite D one schools out of Atlanta. When Atlanta has the most players, why is that? Where is the disconnect? Where are we not doing enough on the training side? Are we not doing enough on the mental side? You know, the Boletari, what do you look for in a player? He's like, I want the most competitive person out there. It's my job to teach him everything else. I can't give him heart. Mm-hmm. Where, where is so the ball being dropped oh yeah let's find a time that we can have that longer conversation because <laughs> i am getting kicked out of the studio um <laughs> and i appreciate it doug i gotta get out of here i know bobby's got uh, an afternoon to do i appreciate you making time and let's definitely do it again because it sounds like we can just keep talking forever doug loved it thank you Hey, thank you, Bobby, for coming out. Very, very nice to meet you. Nice meeting you, too. We'll see you again. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. All right, Sean, thanks again. Well, there you have it. We want to thank Rejuvenate for the use of the studio. Be sure to check out the Rejuvenate Wellness is a Journey podcast at rejuvenate.com forward slash listen. Check out our other episodes at atlantatennispodcast.com. Also, find us at Atlanta Tennis Podcast on social media. Let us know what you think about our conversations, but also click that follow button. Whether you listen to every episode or just want to listen periodically, you can follow in your podcast app, which helps us keep the show going. With that, we're out. See you next time.